The Fitness Reborn podcast is a companion piece to Renaissance Fitness personal training. This podcast is to serve as educational and entertainment purposes only. It does not in any way constitute as medical advice. If you have a medical concern, please seek out your provider. Hello, Internet. This is the Fitness Reborn podcast. My name is Sean from Renaissance Fitness Personal Training, where we put movement ahead of workouts. And my guest today is Dr. Carl Giordano. Dr. Giordano is a double certified spine and orthopedic surgeon. He's the co-founder and chief science officer of Rebisana. I think I'm saying that right, Rebisana. It's a company that's dedicated to healthy aging and longevity. In addition to that, uh, Dr. Giordano uh, is a graduate of Rutgers Medical School. He graduated in 1986. He completed an orthopedic and residency fellowship in spine surgery in 1994 at the Hospital for Joint Diseases in New York City. And he's also the author of a nonfiction book, Shoot the Moon, the true story of a look behind the curtain of medical school and residency and surviving the worst in life. So if you want to know, if you have aspirations in going into uh, medicine, here's a Nice little look behind the curtain of what you have to look forward to. So don't base your judgment on what you see on TV. Take it from someone who was actually there. I think that's the gist of the book there. So Dr. Giordano, thank you for coming on. Uh, you're welcome. I'm looking forward to the show, Sean. Yeah, yeah. So um, longevity, anti-aging. So, you know, pretty broad topic. Um, I've heard a lot about it in the last couple of years. I've read a few books on it. Um, so let's start with this, the uh, the main uh, gist of the uh, program here. So we got Rebisana. So it's a product. It's out there for anti-aging um, benefits here. So mm -hmm. it's a, you know, the science on this is pretty steep. Um, I looked over the website. I've done uh, work on my own here. You know, it kind of gets really into the weeds of things here. So if you don't have a really strong science background, you're going to get lost pretty easily, <laughs> as I kind of did. But uh, Rebisana, so take us through Rebisana. What's, what's that all about? Sure. Uh, and it, what I'm trying to do with my website is make it as understandable as possible. But I recognize there's a little bit of science there. And I, and I think if I can explain the science, then the information and the topic becomes very compelling. But basically, before we even talk about Rebisana, just... I want to just make sure everybody has a good understanding as to why we age. And the current understanding regarding why we age is that aging is a fundamental process where the genes inside every cell in our body are turned on and off incorrectly. And when re gene regulation is lost, your cell loses its identity and you start to age. Imagine every other brain cell in your brain starts to look like a skin cell. That's basically how your brain starts to age and how you can't maintain your cognition. Uh, so Rebisana works to supply molecules that promote maintaining cellular identity. And that's how we can slow the aging process um, and live a longer, healthier life. This is not just about living longer. This is about living healthier. So you hear the word lifespan and you know, more importantly, is the word health span. And the trinity today for living a long, healthy life is this trinity that we talk about of exercise, diet, and signal molecules. And I like to explain the benefits in each of these three categories regarding how they affect 
the cells at a cellular genetic level. And although we talk about cells, you know, cells make up tissues, tissues make up organs. So we're talking about your entire body aging. And certainly some cells will age faster than other cells, but essentially that's why we age. And in the category of what we can do to affect aging is four things. Basically, you have three genes inside every cell in your body referred to as your longevity genes. And we want to nudge those longevity genes in our favor. You have telomeres on, in your DNA, which are the tips of your DNA. And if your telomeres get short, your cell starts to malfunction and lose its identity. Your metabolic processes, such as maintaining your blood sugar, are very important to maintaining health span and lifespan. And then this category of antioxidants. So those are the four things that I like to reduce all the benefits of diet, exercise, and signal molecules to those, those four categories. So Rebasana basically works in the signal molecule category. Um, again, affecting the longevity genes, the telomeres, your metabolism, and the antioxidants. And, and that's um, where my field of expertise lies. And what I find frustrating is that this information is not new. Some of this information is uh, 20, 30 years old, yet somehow the public just doesn't follow this field. And I find even as a physician, most of my colleagues don't really follow this field. And I think it's largely because this is really more science than medicine. And what I want to do is I want to introduce this into the public so that people can understand it and, and latch onto it. And I also want to stir this information up in the medical profession. So each of everybody's individual medical doctors and orthopedic doctors have a better understanding as to why all of this stuff does make a difference. So that's basically what Rebasana is. It, tries to support the longevity gene pathways, the telomere health, your glucose metabolism, and provide powerfully antioxidants uh, that circulate in your body all the time. So what does Rebasana do that other supplements on the market that are, might be on the market right now that don't really do? So how does, so, it, acti how does it activate things that you know others would not activate? Sure. So most of the supplement world today is vitamins and minerals like vitamin D, B12, zinc, magnesium. So that's a completely different category. And I, and I actually put those types of items in the diet category. And I'm hoping people can get enough of zinc and magnesium from a good diet. Um, vitamin D, and we can go back to vitamin D and B12 because those are two vitamins that we tend to find a, a decrease in uh, both of those as we get older. And interestingly, vitamin D, um, most Americans today are probably vitamin D deficient because we're all wearing sunblock. We're all more indoors. You know, historically, you'd had, you had to wear a t-shirt and shorts and be in the sun 15 minutes a day to maintain vitamin D levels. And when you test people's vitamin D levels, they're largely low today, uh, even in athletes. But I put you know, Rebasana in a completely different category. And there aren't a lot of supplements that provide all five of these molecules in the supplement world. In fact, I don't know of any other supplement that's on the market that provides these five specific molecules. So Rebasana has five 
specific molecules. Uh, NMN, nicotinamide mononucleotide, which is fairly popular today, you can buy it separately. Berberine, which helps to lower blood glucose. And you people have heard of uh, berberine through um, things like Golo, which has berberine in it. Um, and, you know, berberine is in that category that you hear about for weight reduction, you know, the Ozempics, the metformins, but all of the hypoglycemics have a lot of medical benefits today. And I think it should be part of everybody's diet today. The third molecule in Rebasana is resveratrol, and the fourth is quercetin, and the fifth is astragalus. So Rebasana basically combines all five of these to make it easy for the public to take, because uh, I think you want a constant blood level of these. And what's interesting about taking them all together is it's very synergistic. There are articles published that taking some of these together provides greater benefit than taking them individually. So although you can take these individually and purchase them individually, uh, you want to take them all at the same time. Um, so we made Revisana convenient. You know, we chose the doses based on cutting edge research and, and most of the publications because you have to have a certain dosage in order to see the benefits that we're looking at. So Revisana, I think, is in a completely different class, which I refer to as signal molecules. And for those who follow this field of resveratrol or NMN or nicotinamide mononucleotide, um, that's the category it's in. And I and I think it has to be visualized as being completely separate from the vitamins and the mineral category. You mentioned that a lot of this information is decades old. You yeah. found stuff going back 30 years. Yeah. What, what was the work, um, was the work that you found from 30 years ago similar to the work you're doing now, or is it just kind of something that was touched on? And then for some reason, like you said, just kind of got either either it was overlooked or it was just maybe intentionally buried yeah. within the medical world. Well, I think this is what happens. You know, this basic research is done in a lab and I applaud all the PhDs at Harvard and MIT and around the world that are doing this work because they're doing fantastic work. Um, but recognize when work is done in a lab, it takes a couple of years to complete an experiment a couple of years to get it published, and then another couple of years for another lab to confirm it and publish their work, and then another couple of years to get into a technical textbook, and then another couple of years to get into a medical textbook. So in general, what doctors learn in medical school is 15, 20 years old to begin with. And then once you graduate, you know, and you start practicing medicine, you're dealing with basic stuff, you know, checking blood pressure, checking someone's uh, vaccine levels, um, and then you're moving on to the next patient. Physicians really don't spend time explaining the science of these molecules. So that's one problem. The other problem is this stuff is published in technical journals like, you know, cell bioengineering. They're not published in the Journal of American Medical Association. So most physicians don't come across this information unless they're really interested in it. The, the guys that won the Nobel Prize for age reversal, that occurred in 2012. So, you know, people aren't aware of it. They just don't follow it. It just, for whatever reason, isn't at the top of all the news shows on a, on a regular basis. 
And it's frustrating as a physician who likes this field. Uh, I started Rebasana primarily because I had so many smart, successful friends who knew very little about uh, staying healthy in these three categories, diet, exercise, and signal molecules. And that's why I decided to launch this, this company. But some of this information, not only does it go back 20, 30 years, some of it goes back a thousand years. Some of these molecules oh. have been used around the world uh, for a thousand years. Um, like berberine, for instance, has been used to help control cholesterol levels and to control or maintain blood sugar levels or metabolic levels for a thousand years. So some of this stuff's just not new, but maybe it's boring to the public. Um, maybe it goes over their head. I don't know. The other thing that I find is that people just assume it doesn't make a difference. Like, you know, I, I think we live in this overly tape measure oriented world today where somebody needs to have a measurement, you know, a blood test result or some type of measurement to like, document that there's a benefit. And, you know, when you're talking about aging, it's a very slow process. It's hard to see the benefit on a day-to-day, month-to-month level. It's, it's virtually impossible to see it on a month-to-month or day-to-day level. But when you look at this over long periods of time, there are benefits. And I think that's what people have to realize. It's almost like you are emptying a swimming pool a gallon of water at a time. Eventually, you empty it. But it's hard to see the changes on a day-to-day basis. And people just assume it doesn't make a difference. And that's where they're wrong. The, the common phrase that I hear is, you know, my grandmother lived to be 98. So I got good genes. I don't really have much to worry about. What they don't realize is probably 20% of their health span is related to their, the genetics that they were given by their parents. And probably 80% of their health span is determined by their own lifestyle choices and how they influence their genes throughout their life. So that's what the modern medicine is telling us today. But I think people get lost in this world where I can't measure it, probably not going to make a difference, no big deal. But that's where they're wrong. These these issues of, of accelerated aging or insidious changes that occur in your body, um, and they will manifest themselves um, over time. Yeah, well, that uh, that eighty percent influence that you can have over your genetics and your longevity is kind of what I'm banking on because I personally do not have a whole lot of longevity in my family. Mm-hmm. I have one great grandmother who came close to a hundred, but that's that's really about it right there. But I think uh, on the whole, yeah, you're right. Um, I think people consider their genetics to be just what they are. It's like yeah. your, your your genetic limit is your. You hear this a lot, like if you're into bodybuilding or strength yeah. building and stuff like that. When especially you know you talk about guys who want bigger muscles and stuff like that. It's like, well, your genetics are your genetics. Either you can make the big muscles or you can't make the big muscles. I know that's kind of a, a deviation and an oversimplification of what you just said, but no, people, I, I agree. Yeah. But people just kind of take that thing for granted that it's just not something you can do about it. It is what it is. And it's mm-hmm. out of your control. So about you, about you personally. Um, so I know you said already that you were interested in the science of it. And before we even started recording here, you said that a lot of doctors don't really take interest in the science very very much at all. They kind of just kind of, I I suppose, get lost in the day-to-day grind of being a medical doctor, Mm -hmm. which can be a grind. Um, So how did you go from spine surgeon 
orthopedic doctor to now like into the area of genetics and longevity and things like that. It seems like you kind of did a jump from one branch of medicine over to another, or am I wrong about that? No, no, you're not wrong. But my background going back to college was chemistry. Uh, I was originally going to go into surgical oncology. So I've followed kind of the genetic origins of diseases for the last 30 years. I mean, I've always been fascinated by it. The work when I spent a little time at Rockefeller University, as well as the NIH and the National Cancer Division, um, I followed this science at a scientific level for 30 years. I've really never let it go. And what made me make the jump of actually getting uh, uh, more into the participation mode of getting this information out to the public was the fact that it, I, I found it very frustrating that very few people seem to know about this field. I, I couldn't explain it. Um, and I have a lot of very successful, smart friends, um, but they just, like the general public, um, just don't follow the field. And, you know, I, I heard this, this uh, statement a while ago where, you know, every one of us basically enters into a uh, discussion with our own opinions. And smart people are just better at cherry picking facts to support their own opinions. And that occurs in everything, whether it's politics or healthcare. People smart or, or, or people that aren't educated, they feel like these issues don't make a difference. And the smart people and the successful people are really good at cherry picking facts to say it doesn't make a difference. But their opinions are as flawed as anybody's opinions. Um, so I decided I needed to try and translate this information in a better way than it's being done so that everybody can understand this. Uh, and I get it. There's a little bit of science that's required to understand what your longevity genes are. And I think everybody learned a little bit of biology in high school or, or college, and they need to have a refresher course to understand what these longevity genes are and look, we share these longevity genes with every living organism on the planet. The longest living organism on the planet is a bristlecone pine tree, lives you know four or 5,000 years. And it has the same segments and sections of DNA that you and I have. It just has more of these longevity genes. So people need to understand that this is not science fiction. This is real, real science. And when chronic issues come up, or when you see accelerated changes in your body coming up, to think that you didn't cause that over the course of your lifetime is what's wrong. Um, you know, in America, we wait for you to get sick and then we treat you. We have sick care in this country. There's no health care and it's a mistake. Um, whether you're talking about, you know, staying flexible or uh, athletic or strong and maintaining your muscle mass, uh, there's a slow degradation of all of these categories and you can influence them in a positive way. And I get it. It's hard to measure. Uh, we haven't yet lived long enough to document that people that live this way will live 20, 30 years longer than the people who don't live this way. But you, you can look at football players today uh, or, or you know, people that are in those type of athletic endeavors they typically don't live as long. You know, I, it, it hurts me to see some of these 
star football players back when I was a kid watching pro football, and they're dying in their 60s and 70s. That's awfully young today, but they have nudged the longevity genes in the wrong direction. So I'll, I'll get into the science a little bit. So there are, there's a longevity gene called mTOR. And when you downregulate mTOR in every cell in your body, you stimulate the cells to recycle misfolded proteins, which we want to do. If you don't recycle those misfolded proteins, those proteins end up creating a form of cellular clutter or traffic in your cell. So your cell doesn't work as efficiently, it's making the wrong proteins, and those cells lose their identity, and that contributes to aging, that contributes to dysfunction uh, of those cells. So, you know, certain uh, athletes are really pushing the high protein diets to build up their muscle mass. They are upregulating mTOR. They're doing the exact opposite of what genetics is telling us that we should be doing. And I'm not saying you can't play those sports, but people need to be aware that we would prefer from a longevity health span perspective to downregulate mTOR. Some of these signal molecules in Rebasana do just that, they downregulate mTOR. Uh, whether or not they can offset the, the issues of a high protein diet is unclear in the human being, but there's no question we would like to nudge those cellular functions in our, in our favorable direction. So, you know, those are the issues that led me to kind of get into this field. I mean, I, I understand the cellular components very clearly. And I, I am looking for mediums like your podcast to get this information out into the public, because this is the medium that most people choose today. They want to listen to a podcast rather than read, which is fine. Podcasts are fantastic today. It's a, a very efficient way of listening to information when you're in the car or on the beach or you know somewhere. And I think that's why I decided to participate in these types of programs to get this information out there. So on the issue that you just mentioned, the football players example, the guys who, you know, put very high levels of protein into their body. So they're probably consuming a very high proportion of meat, animal products. Yeah. And with the idea of keeping up muscle mass and keeping up their strength. So, I mean, I have noticed in the last couple of years, there's a rising trend in podcasts and books and stuff like that, especially, um, they're proponents of carnivore diets mm -hmm. and saying that, especially one podcast in particular that I'm not going to mention, but one podcast in particular, she's a medical doctor. She's worked with geriatric patients. She's a very strong proponent of pushing more and more protein, high protein diets on elderly geriatric patients as a way of keeping up their muscle, their muscle integrity. Because mm -hmm. as we know, as we get older, one of the things that does decrease is muscle mass is mm -hmm. you know thinner bones osteoporosis sar sarcopenia all that kind of stuff here it's kind of the bane of getting older so this is what this is what people dread about getting older is getting mm -hmm. weak falling getting hurt that kind of thing and she has become a very strong proponent of pushing more protein on geriatric patients as a way of increasing their their strength their muscular strength and keeping them alive and healthy and she's seen um, I can't verify her results, but she's seen good results in that in her own practice, hence her podcast now. Um, mm -hmm. So I just want to give you an opportunity to answer that. 
Sure. Yeah. And look, don't get me wrong. You need protein to maintain muscle mass. No question. The question is, how much do you need to maintain muscle mass? So look, this brings us into two other categories outside of signal molecules. And, you know, I want your listeners to keep in mind there are three categories, exercise, diet, and signal molecules. So let's talk about the exercise category where that is broken down into four subcategories, strength training, aerobic conditioning, balance function, and stretching. And you're right. You know, we lose three to 8% of muscle mass per decade as we get older. Over age 60, our muscle mass declines at about one to 2% per year, and our muscle strength declines at about the same rate over age 50. So we want to maintain our muscle mass. And we know from charts, if you want to be able to have a certain strength at a certain age, we can backtrack to see what your strength has to be at an earlier age, because we know that decline is going to occur. Likewise, there's the VO2 max, you know, for aerobic conditioning, balance function and stretching. All of those are important, but just specifically dealing with the muscle mass, there's no question you need to have the right amount of protein in your diet to maintain muscle mass. And look, you need to maintain your muscle mass and you need to maintain your strength by strength training. So when people are already in that pathologic state and people are trying to build up muscle mass in the elderly that have not been living this life throughout their entire life, then yeah, they may need to have really high protein diets to try and maintain the mass of the muscle. But you can't, there's not a lot of benefit in maintaining mass if you're not maintaining strength you still have to exercise. So mm-hmm. in that category of exercise, strength training is probably the most important. Um, some of the people that talk about this topic believe that strength training is the most potent drug for longevity. And look, I understand what strength training does on a cellular level. And strength training has similar genetic effects. Strength training maintains your telomere length. Strength training can enhance your body's ability to uh, repair DNA. Strength training increases your antioxidant defenses. Strength training reduces inflammation. It improves immune function. And it also works on your metabolic health or maintaining your glucose level. So strength training is important. But I think it's a little simplistic to say, I'm just going to like give a high protein diet to the elderly and expect the benefit. They got to do all of this, just like we all have to do all of this. And I think if you're in the, in the field of, of, of diet, you push you know, the high protein diet, but I think it's a mistake. I think you still have to see the big picture, which is the right diet, the right amount of protein, and the, the right amount of exercise throughout your life. Like you can't wait for this to become a pathologic state and then expect a protein shake to solve all your problems. That's 20-year-old that's information. Uh, we need to just understand all three categories, and all three of them are important. So look, this gets us now to this category of diet. And you know, I think if you look at the longevity diet, and this is argued by people, um, there's no question that the low-protein, high-complex carbohydrate diet would be considered the longevity diet. Low-protein doesn't mean pathologically low-protein. It just differentiates itself 
from the standard American diet, which is lots of steaks and hamburgers and meats. So, you know, the Mediterranean diet is traditionally plant-based, vegetarian, seeds, nuts, things like that. You can still get enough protein to avoid losing muscle mass, but you have to have enough of that protein through plant-based diets to maintain your muscle mass. And I think, you know, even the Mediterranean diet has probably 20% meat and fish. It's not just all vegetarian plant-based. But I think we need to understand that the science behind diet highly favors health span and lifespan in the largely plant-based diet category. And I think at some age, you know, we may transition from caring less about uh, the bulk of our muscles and more about the, the whole health span issue of these three categories. But yeah, I, I don't want anyone to misinterpret that we don't need protein in our diet. Um, I, I have a son who still takes protein shakes and I'm still trying to convince him you know, to, to drift away from them because I know what it's doing on a cellular genetic level. Now he sees the, the muscle mass and the bulk. He doesn't see what's occurring you know, on a cellular level uh, where cells lose their identity. Um, but you, know, we, you do the best you can. I think my goal is to prevent pe uh, pre present people with the information so they can choose what life they want. They may want to stay uh, bulky and play a pro sport. And I get that. You know, you're not going to get a linebacker for a pro football team who's going to buy into this now. But at some point in their life, when they stop playing pro football, they may want to rethink this. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's information that needs to be out there, at least. So something else I wanted to talk to you about, because I did see it on your website, and it, and I was glad I did, because I started thinking about it the minute I started reading up on your work, um, this, this, uh, this topic of autophagy, yeah. which is comes from intermittent fasting, yeah. for, for, lack, for lack of a, better, uh, a yeah. better term than that. And that was something I started taking interest in just a few years ago. I've got a few books on it here, and actually... There was a book, I don't know if you've heard of this man, but uh, his name is David Sinclair. Sure. Scient scientist yeah. out of, right, out of Austra an Australian scientist. Um, he talks a lot about anti-aging and autophagy and things like that. And actually, he even goes a step further in saying we could call um, aging actually a disease because of its progressive elements. So yes. agree. That, that, that was, that was uh, an interesting way of characterizing it to me. I never thought about aging as an actual disease, but when you think about it in the parameters of, how it progresses, how it contributes to the degradation of tissue and your body as a whole, it makes a lot of sense. And then mm -hmm. that led me into other areas like um, another guy, well-known guy, Jason Fung. Mm -hmm. uh, I think he's a kidney doctor, mm -hmm. but he but he got really heavily, he's spoken very heavily and written books on intermittent fasting and autophagy. And one of the things I do recognize from your own work is to talk about the telomeres. And I did recognize that earlier from other mm -hmm. readings about how, you know, autophagy can regenerate cells and this mm -hmm. contributes to longevity there. Do you, are you a proponent of autophagy? Do you use that in your own, in your own right? Yeah, absolutely. So autophagy brings up, you know, uh, two avenues for us to discuss. You know, one is uh, without autophagy, we certainly accelerate the loss of cellular identity, which is the same thing as saying we accelerate aging. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I do like the way Sinclair refers to aging as the disease. The FDA does not consider aging a disease. Uh, so we can talk about aging. Um, and when we talk about autophagy, we're talking about recycling the misfolded proteins in every cell in your body. And if you don't recycle them, certain proteins will accumulate. Like as an example, in the brain, if you don't recycle certain cells in the brain, you get these proteins that aggregate as amyloid plaques. And we don't want those plaques. Those plaques disrupt brain transmission of signals from cell to cell. We want to maintain our cognition by minimizing the amyloid plaques. And we want to do that by promoting autophagy. We want to recycle those misfolded proteins, not just in the brain, but in the endothelial cells of your heart or every, or the endothelial or the blood vessels in your brain, every cell in your body. We want the endothelial cells around your joints to recycle their misfolded proteins so that the blood supply to your cartilage can be maintained. Because once those cells start to malfunction, everything starts to deteriorate. Now, when you uh, intermittently fast, you stimulate autophagy because you are downregulating the mTOR gene. And that's the gene that promotes recycling of misfolded proteins. Uh, a colleague of mine from medical school identified a human gene called Becklin-1 that also stimulates autophagy. Um, I think that was the first mammalian gene identified to promote autophagy. But if you downregulate mTOR, you stimulate autophagy. When you upregulate mTOR, like with a high-protein diet, you turn off autophagy because that's, that's your genetic mechanism to taking the proteins that you're eating from steaks and the amino acids and building more protein mass. So autophagy is critical. And Sinclair is spot on with his work, not just with autophagy. Uh, he is a big uh, scientists in the field of the NMN or the nicotinamide mononucleotide that works on a different genetic pathway called sirtuins. So hats off to Sinclair. I think he is a leader in this field uh, and I love his work and I love the way he describes it. There is a criticism of fasting as not having this type of actual benefit that we can measure. Um, this gets me back into that tape measure uh, segment of the population that wants to measure something. And these are hard things to measure in the human body. Um, But when you look at the mice studies, when you fast them or you feed them once a day instead of three times a day, uh, and these studies were somewhat flawed, but they gave some information. But when you fast mice, the ones that were fasting lived longer. Now, the criticism is a mouse lives just a couple of years. And in order to translate information to humans, we would have to fast several days at a time to see the benefit. Now, I'm not a believer in that argument. That can't be measured just like you can't measure the benefits in intermittently fasting in a human being. But I only mention it because you know those counter arguments are out there. But you can also stimulate autophagy by certain messenger molecules which is what I like about the components in Ravasana. Certain messenger molecules um, will stimulate autophagy 
and promote the recycling of these misfolded proteins. So we want to basically attack aging from all three categories, exercise, diet, and messenger molecules. And autophagy is one of those categories uh, that's important. Now, you, you also mentioned the telomeres. When the telomeres get short, the cell interprets that short telomere as cellular damage or genetic damage. And either it shuts down the cell and creates a zombie cell, or um, it may create a cell line that's not normal. So we want to try and do everything we can to maintain the length of our telomeres. And there's an enzyme called telomerase in every cell in your body. And if you can stimulate that enzyme telomerase to maintain the length of your telomere, you're probably doing some good to your body. Again, it's difficult to measure because, you know, we're talking about something you might see 30 years down the road. But uh, Ostragalus is felt to be an organic molecule that stimulates, that has been shown to stimulate the telomerase enzyme. So it maintains the length of your telomere. And that's why Ostragalus is in Revisana. So we tried to put everything in Revisana to be conveniently to use, but to, again, to work on these cellular pathways to promote health span and lifespan. So I, I, I've heard you voice frustration many times mm -hmm. about the, the medical, let's, let's just say establishment. That yeah. sounds like a negative connotation, but let's just call it that. Over, you know, people who just want to discount anything that just they can't see with their own eyes. Like if it's not under a microscope, and I've run into people like that too. Yeah. You know, I work in a lab. These are very, these are people whose lives are, you know, it's all about what's, what can be empirically seen and understood and what can be translated onto, you know, you know, a, a paper or a book or anything like that. Like just the, it's a lack of imagination is mm -hmm. really what it is. And um, have you, I assume um, from what you've told me that you've kind of run up against that frustration many times in your life here too, it's where it's like, you, ironically, I think what's ironic about science these days is that it is considered to be axiomatic to so many people, just the same as like religion is to other people. It's like, yeah. you know, this is the holy book. This is what it says. There's no arguing here. And I find that just very one, sad, and two, ironic, you know, the fact that, you know, you have people now in the science field that are holding up, you know, science essentially as a Bible and saying, you can't argue this. This is, this is law. And has that been a, a thorn in your side many, many times? I assume it has. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Look, you look, you're hitting the nail on the head and that's why, you know, this podcast is so valuable. And look, I, I say that science, this is science, not medicine for a reason. Mm -hmm. Um, and most doctors are practicing medicine. Most doctors are practicing treatment for a disease that you show up into their office with. They're not practicing medicine that's preventative 30 years down the road. This is a whole new field. And this information is largely buried in the PhD world. Uh, and look, I applaud you know, Sinclair and people like him. Um, he's trying to get this information out there. He's doing everything he can, but it does, doesn't get to the medical profession very well. I, I think 15 years it will, but my God, we live in the information age where the transmission of information should be quick. We shouldn't have to wait 15 years. Um, so I am always frustrated when I talk to physicians about this. 
because they know enough to be a little skeptical, but they don't really recall back to their days of certain genes in, in, in every cell in our body. So they know enough to push back, but they don't know enough to really understand it. And look, I think, you know, unfortunately, we're talking about business today, whether right. your practice is uh, in medicine or your practice is a stockbroker. You know, there's an economic component to practicing medicine today. You see your patient, you check their blood pressure, you give them an antihypertensive, and you move on to the next patient. I have never run across, well, I, I mean, I'm sure there are out there, but there are very few doctors that will talk to their patients about this. Um, you know, there, look, Dr. Atia, uh, you know, treats patients this way. Dr. Brieger in New York treats people this way. You know, they're very difficult doctors to get in to see. You know, their practices are probably closed. But that's, to me, modern medicine today. And I think it should be part of everybody's medical practice. But I get it. You know, doctors have to see a certain number of patients per day to cover their overhead. And these are lengthy discussions. That's why, you know, I tried to put it is in, a, in a simplistic form on my website. I'm trying to put YouTube videos up on the internet so people can watch them at their own leisure. And I, I have a number of YouTube videos up on, on explaining lipids to the public, explaining food to the public. Um, and I get criticized because some of them are 40 minute long uh, lectures, but they're slideshows. I narrate them. And I think you need to see what a fatty acid looks like, what cholesterol looks like, so that you can understand what they are. Um, people have to take some ownership into this information themselves. Because, like I said, the, it's compelling if you understand it. It's not compelling if you are in that category where it just doesn't make a difference. Um, but it's frustrating. I, I struggle with physicians who don't follow the science, but I, I give them leeway because, again, I consider it more science-oriented than, than, than more medicine. Do you think uh, longevity and age expectancy? Do you do you think it's decreasing? I've heard because uh, I've heard you know just coming out of COVID, like COVID yeah. did COVID did pretty permanent damage to the population just because of how how bad it was and how it was global and everything like that. Yeah. But it seems like, from my understanding, even before COVID, and I was reading this stuff. It seems like that trend was going was going in that direction anyway. So that COVID just kind of helped knock it down about three or five pegs, mm -hmm. you know, and it just accelerated what was already happening here. Now, ironically, it seems like even with with everything we have now, with the advanced medical science that we have now, and the you know more luxuries, more comforts than ever before, at least in this country, that you would think our lifespan would be increasing. But now it seems like it's either getting stopped dead in its tracks or it's actually going in the opposite direction because of how we live. Yeah. Well, look, there's a couple of things to talk about in, in that category. And look, I recognize when we look at average age of, of lifespan today, it's complicated mm -hmm. because we have better health care. And our goal is not just to have people live longer. Our goal is to have people live healthier. And that's where this topic of health span comes in. And there are lots of reasons why the average age of death, you know, changes. And, and we are, you know, we have two things that are competing against each other. One, we have better ways to keep people alive. 
but we also are introducing things into the public's uh, lifestyle choices that actually will diminish their average age. Um, things like, you know, alcohol, you know, uh, things like seed oils. We are slowly, you know, killing people with a thousand little cuts, again, that are difficult to measure. And that's the problem. Because you're right, lifespan should be increasing. People should be living longer. We know now what people need to do. But, you know, if people think that alcohol doesn't make a difference, they're wrong. If people think seed oils doesn't make a difference, they're wrong. Uh, we are changing the cellular membrane and the cellular makeup of every cell in our body with seed oils. So, you know, just as an example, like your omega-6 to omega-3 fatty acids make up your, your cell membranes in every cell in your body. And historically, that ratio is one to one, four to one, or one to four, depending on what you read. Many articles today indicate that our ratio is 15 to one or 20 to one. So we are changing what toxins can get out of our cell or get into our cell by changing the permeability of every cell in our body. So although medicine can keep you alive longer, is the quality of life better because we're, we're introducing all of these other chronic issues into our system? And that's the problem today. Um, you know, our goal is not to feed the economic system of medicine. You know, it's a it's big business, obviously. You need a hip replacement, you get an artificial hip. You need a knee replacement, you get an artificial knee. Um, you know, you want to have fast food, you want to have fried food. I mean, you can get it a lot easier than you ever could. But all of those things are slowly wearing our bodies down in an accelerated way. And that's why I think people need to think of aging as something we can accelerate or decelerate. So we've got two forces kind of fighting each other. We are accelerating the aging process by our lifestyle choices and our environmental choices. And we are decelerating the, the time in which we die by the benefits of, of uh, advances in medicine today. So it's not really accurate to, to generate any real useful information by the changes in the average age of death today. Because you're right, we should be living longer and healthier today mm -hmm. with all of the information that we have today. But it's kind of hovering in the same region. Um, so, you know, I think, you know, you can get information from these large epidemiological or observational studies, um, but you got to be careful how much useful information you get out of it. So I kind of want to take... Uh... I take a step back a little bit because I, I, I mentioned at the top of the show here, you authored a book called, called Shoot the Moon, the true mm -hmm. story of a look behind the curtain of medical school and residency and surviving the worst in life. Okay, so now we're kind of we're going into something that happened in your life, which I think is extraordinary. Yeah. And just based on the little excerpt I, I, I read in an article about how you survived that, you survived a plane crash. Yeah. A, a, yeah. A plane crash that killed the pilot. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not like you came out of it unscathed, but mm -hmm. it sounds like you were pretty much back on your feet within yeah. months of coming out of a plane crash, which is just about as close to unscathed as you can get. Yeah. Um, now, you you also mentioned that there's a little excerpt saying, like, how becoming a medical doctor helped you cope with a tragedy. Yeah. So you have linked your profession 
with a traumatic event in your life, something that most of us will never experience. I hope I never experienced that. Yeah. And I'm kind of thinking or just wondering, like this interest, this intense interest, mm -hmm. which you've always had an interest in science of genetics mm -hmm. and chemistry and biology anyway, but this now just very laser focused, intense interest in longevity and living a longer, better life. Has mm -hmm. that, well, well, one, let's talk about, let's talk about the book, talk about the experience and has that influenced why you are, you are just charging like a bull towards this new cause. Well, listen, Sean, I, I appreciate you making that connection because I have not making that connection, but you're well, I, probably right. It was probably the same uh, motivation that led me to go through residency and write that book is the same motivation, the same fire in my belly that's driving me towards this passion of healthcare, uh, health span and lifespan. But uh, so thank you for making that connection. I had not made that. Well, I, I, but, I don't want to. I don't want to put words in your mouth or anything like that. I was just kind of wondering because that. I mean, honestly, it, it, when I was looking over your background here, it, that that wasn't obviously the main feature of the background. We were talking about you know Revisana and your longevity work and all that kind of stuff here, and this was kind of towards the bottom here. I was like, oh, wow, he wrote this book, a nonfiction book, and I kind of thought it was like maybe it was. Not about him, but maybe he's an approximation of him. But then I looked more into it. I looked at it on Amazon. It's like, oh, no, that's actually him. He's talking yeah. about himself. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's like, wow, this, this guy just got even more interesting to me. So, <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I wanted the book to be a very positive experience regarding going to medical school and residency because I, I didn't want it to be the drudgery that people think of it. I wanted the book to motivate people to go into medicine because I love my field. Uh, I love my specialty of orthopedics and spine surgery because there's so much immediate gratification from those mm -hmm. types of surgeries. So I wanted to write a book when I was recovering from my injuries. Um, highlighting those aspects. And I, I wanted to make the parallel um, of how my experience as a physician, as a surgeon in the operating room, I believe is what kept me calm in the plane uh, to, to make what I thought was the right moves. And, you know, look, obviously there's a lot of work and time involved in going into medical school and residency, and I loved every minute of it. And I wanted people to somehow feel that from the book. But one thing that people don't, I think, realize when you work as a surgeon is, you know, you have to accomplish your goal in the OR. There's no looking over your shoulder for help because there isn't any. You're, you're the person that has to complete the task. And in the plane, when we lost our engine at 6,500 feet, um, there was no, no one behind me, no, no reason for me to look over my shoulder for help. There wasn't any. And I've spoken to a bunch of pilots who see the similarity of being a pilot. And if you've ever listened to you know, cockpit uh, transmissions of, of harrowing experiences, they all stay calm. And I, I can't tell you how much I applaud uh, the pilot that I was sitting next to. I thought he did an absolute fantastic job. Um, he kept the plane steady. He didn't panic. I didn't want to distract him. We spoke very little after we lost our engine. He's communicating with their traffic controller. We're trying to find a place to, to put the plane down. And 
I thought he did a fantastic job. And I had flown with pilots, multiple pilots over the years. And, you know, when you fly as a pilot, you talk about what you do in emergency situations. You constantly rehearse what movements you would do with your hands and arms, what gauges you're going to look at, similar to what you do when you're in residency in medical school. You want to experience things that go wrong in the OR because you need to know how to bail, bail out if you need to. You, we need to know like what, what the safety issues are, how far we can go, and what we do if we come across something that may not be exactly the way we want it. So there's a lot of similarities to being in the OR and being in a plane. And as we would rehearse in the OR as a surgeon, we would also rehearse in the cockpit of the plane. And several of the pilots that I had flown with had said to me, you know, if it's going to be a really hard landing, the door could buckle and you won't be able to open the door. So they would say, you know, if it's going to be a really hard landing, you unlatch the door before you land. And when we lost our engine, I couldn't get that thought out of my my head. I, I really was focused on two things. I, I wasn't in panic mode. I was really convinced I was going to get out of this situation. And I did not want to distract the pilot, just like in the OR, no one gets distracted. Uh, in fact, in my book, I talk about how when I first, I think when I was a first year resident, uh, one of the nurses in the operating room had dropped this big metal tray filled with instruments. And you can imagine the sound it made. And everybody at the OR table didn't even flinch. Nobody gets distracted in the OR. And you, you learn that with time. You're, you know, there, there may be music on the background, but you are intensely focused on the, the task at hand. And that's the way we were in, in the plane. Uh, didn't want to distract the pilot. He did exactly what he needed to do. I was just lucky I was near the door. And when the time came, uh, all I was focused on, I was rehearsing in my head, releasing my seatbelt, opening the door. And when the time came, I was lucky enough to have gotten out of the plane as we started to nosedive down. And uh, I attribute my ability to stay calm and, and think about what was going to happen and what I could do to all those years in the operating room and, and through that residency training. I mean, there is no value in crossing your arms over your head and panicking. You know, and I think even my, my childhood, my, my dad used to always say, you, you do the best you can. Let the chips fall where they may. Don't, don't be in a position where you look back and wish you had done something differently. And when I was in that plane, just like when, I was, when I'm in the operating room, I don't want to leave any stone unturned. I want to know I did the best I could, but I wasn't willing to give up. Just like you can't give up in the OR, I didn't give up in the plane. I feel bad that the pilot had no chance, that there was no door on his side. Um, so, you know, I was lucky enough to get out. And look, whether there was some invisible hand above that helped me get out, you know, who knows? Um, I remember everything in the plane except maybe two or three seconds. Um, I remember getting out and uh, crawling around on the ground. And it was a, a crazy experience. I, um, I experienced what I saw people in the emergency room and trauma bays go through all the time. I knew exactly what the EMT people were going to do. I knew exactly what the doctors in the ER were going to do. And I was proud to be part of that profession. 
that handled it all so well, which I had seen thousands and thousands of times. And look, maybe that same passion that made me not want to miss any trauma case as a resident uh, is the same passion that's now firing me up with this field. I think it's just all too valuable for the public to not be aware of. So you may be right in making that, that correlation. So one thing, and I wanted to ask your input on this because I kind of experienced this myself too when I went through something, not like what you went through, but about you know 12 years ago, I was in a car wreck. And you're right, it, it, was, it was a pretty bad wreck. It was in a rainstorm. My car um, hydroplaned, mm -hmm. spun out, hit a road barrier to separate the two op opposite lanes. And it was on a highway, middle of night. And yeah, that smashed up my car. I was the only one in. It turned over. It slid back. I nearly got clipped by a semi behind me in the middle, wow. of, a rain, in the middle of a rainstorm. And that whole time, I do not remember panicking. It was just like, I just thought, okay, I was upside down or on my side in this car. It was like, my first thought was, okay, got to get out. Mm -hmm. So I crawled out of a busted window. Yeah. And that's... That's about it. I don't remember. It's like almost like it happened so fast. I didn't have time to panic. It was like some. It was like time really kind of slowed down. Yeah. And and your your higher mind, your neocortex, just kind of like, which is like the high the higher part of your brain, as opposed to like the limbic session, yeah. which is primal. Just like says, okay, freaking out right now will not do you any good. You're it's a pouring rain. You're on a highway. Get up out of this. And yeah. so that's, that's kind of what I experienced right there. So is that similar to what you went, you went through? It's like, okay, oh, yeah. this is what, this is happening. This is what I need to do. Yeah. And, you know, I think I've had, you know, tens of thousands of experiences like that in the OR where time slows down. And I thought when we lost our engine, the descent down was 20 minutes. A friend of mine who also flies in my, in my neighborhood came over to the house with the actual radio transmission that was recorded on the internet. And it was 90 seconds. I was shocked. I thought everything was in slow motion when we were descending. I thought it was 20 minutes. And I was just amazed how it felt as though everything slowed down. So yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a terrible experience. I hope nobody, you know, goes through it. Um, but for me, I, I saw the parallels to what I do in the operating room all the time, where there is very little distraction. There, there are peripheral things going on, um, but they don't distract you. And, you know, no one looks at the clock in the OR. The time is what it is. The case takes what it, ca what it, what it takes. And that's the way it was in the plane as well. And it's amazing how the brain works. It's almost some type of defense mechanism that you have to engage. And I've always felt that role playing or talking about this may help prepare people for a situation where they've got to stay calm. The more role playing you do, probably the better off you're going to be in to, to deal with this. Um, you know, there was, uh, uh, I forget the name of the author who wrote a book that talked about how when your heart is racing at a certain beats per minute, it's hard, you know, your epinephrine system is, is engaged. It's hard to concentrate and make the right mental decisions. 
So if you can keep your heart rate down, if you can keep your head on your shoulders, you'll probably make better decisions in life in all of those emergency situations. Yeah, completely agree. So, you know, you control the breath, control your life. That's where hyperventilating really comes comes into. Is like yeah. Shallow breathing causes, sends panic signals to the brain and, and everything else just kind of goes downhill from there. Mm -hmm. But uh, Dr. Giordano, we have a closing tradition on this podcast where the guest has the last word. So we talked about a whole lot of things here. We went deep into science. We talked about longevity, DNA, telomeres, um, fasting. We talked about your, um, your near-death experience there. If there's one thing that the listener listening to this podcast can walk away from, if they remember nothing else, if, if they can remember this, what would you say it would be? I would say to the uh, the audience that they have to believe that in every one of us is a younger me. I want them to believe that every day makes a difference, that aging is malleable. And this turning point to understand how we control biological aging occurred years ago. And they have to believe that every day makes a difference and that they can indeed influence their own health span and lifespan. That that would be my take home message to them. Wonderfully said. Dr. Giordano, thank you for your time on the Sunday. <laughs> well, thank you for having me, Sean. This was a real enjoyable podcast. A yes, lot of good information we touched on. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. And uh, happy Father's Day to you. Happy Father's Day to all the dads that are listening. Um, fatherhood is immensely important to children. Don't ever let anyone tell you differently. Yep. Uh, it makes it makes a big it makes a big difference in um, how well and how healthy. Talk about healthy children, healthy generations coming up. Um, it's been found again and again that fa having fathers or father figures, at yes. the very least, can make a huge difference in the child. So don't ever discount yourself that way. Yes, very well said, Sean. So all right. To all of you listening, this has been uh, Dr. Uh, Carl Giordano. He is a longevity and healthy aging specialist here and a double certified uh, spine and orthopedic surgeon. He's very kind of us to join us on a Sunday on a Father's Day. I enjoyed his, his information immensely. I'll put all his contact information um, up on the show notes. You guys know that. You can follow me for a while. I always put information, uh, contact information for the guests so you can reach out to them if you are interested. Look over the website. Uh, look over the information. It's not a terribly hard read. It's very digestible. Trust me, I've looked it over. And um, yeah, so all of you listening, thanks so much for checking in. And I'll see you next time. Peace out. Thank you. Hey, thanks for listening. Don't forget, you can become a supporter of the show by becoming a monthly subscriber. No commitments. Cancel anytime. Every little bit helps. And I'd sure love your support. Also, you can click any of the links to our social media platforms provided in the show notes, and you can email me at renfitnesswarriors at gmail.com. That's ren, R-E-N, fitnesswarriors at gmail.com. If you got a fitness story to tell, I'd love to hear it. And you never know, you might just find yourself on the show. Until next time, train hard. Peace. <laughs>